I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 5 then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom 
and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So after hearing these two chapters, where is the seat of authority and power? Is it in the courthouse? Is it in the state house? Is it in the polling place? Is it in government summits? Is it in Hollywood? The executive boardrooms? Wall Street? Demonstrations in the street? Social media? I propose that these are all sources of opinions, but all authority originates with the one who is the source of all things, the one who is seated upon the throne and the lamb that was slain. Because rights are given by God and recognized by various entities. Um, many of you have attended a wedding that I have um, performed. And you may have noticed that when I pronounce husband and wife, I use words that are different from many other preachers. Many preachers will say, by the power vested in me by the state of Kansas, I now pronounce you man and wife. But I state, by the power entrusted to me by Almighty God and recognized by the state of Kansas, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Because I believe the authority does not rest in the courthouse or in the state house. It originates at the throne of God. This difference may be small in your mind, but it's huge in mine. My authority does not come from state statute because I have been called by God and set apart or ordained by His people. The best that government can do is to establish constitutional or civil rights, but God grants human rights that are unalienable. If the government were to ever strip pastors of the right to sign a marriage license, I will still lead couples and covenanting together before God as a picture of Christ in the church. In our first sermon in this series, we worshipped a God who is sufficient for any situation. In the second message, we adored the God who knows your situation. And this week, we bow in awe at the God who is over all situations. 
in a world where personal truth is promoted as the ultimate reality, it is good for us to adjust our understanding to conform to the revealed truth from the origin of truth, Because the error of wandering into falsehood is not a new problem. The first thing I want to direct our attention to this morning is the teaching regarding the Trinity of God. And I believe we need to have a clear understanding of the Trinity because precision matters. The Council of Nicaea happened a long, long time ago, in the year 325. Because Arius was a preacher in the early 4th century who proclaimed that Jesus is somehow less important than the Father. So Emperor Constantine invited 1,800 bishops from all of Christendom to come together in the summer of 325. Now, of the 1,800 who were invited, 300 showed up. Kind of sounds like a church business meeting, doesn't it? All the members are invited, and a few show up. And after three months of debate and discussion, these 300 bishops came forth with a statement that was agreed upon and was signed by every single attendant at the summit except for two. Those two were then excommunicated and removed of their titles. Now this council did decide some smaller things like when do we celebrate Easter? But the biggest thing coming out of the Council of Nicaea was the first officially signed creed of the church where we read that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God. He was begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead and in the Holy Ghost. We believe in one God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Why does this matter? It matters because when Jesus was literally dead in the grave, the Father and the Spirit were both living and active. There has never been a time in eternity past or eternity future when God was dead. God the Son was dead, but God never ceases to be God. And so our understanding of the Trinity is important to know that we serve an eternal and a non-dying God. Now, if we overemphasize the oneness of Father, Son, and Spirit, it can lead to our confusion. If we overemphasize the separate persons, it can lead to misunderstanding. Most of us have parents or had parents whom we admire. 
And generally from our parents, we learn life skills like cooking, managing a checkbook, cleaning, laundry, how to check the oil or change a tire on a car, how to bait a hook or gut a deer. In my family, I have never seen my mother under the hood of a car. And I have never seen my father leaning over the washing machine. But I've learned these skills from my parents. Sometimes it was my father, sometimes it was my mother. Now, all analogies break down because the Trinity is a unique, one-of-a-kind relationship. So I'm not saying that God is like parents, but just as I learn from my parents, and sometimes I learn from one, and other times I learn from the other, when we think of one God, there are three distinct persons. But with God, if any person of the Godhead is missing What you have left is less than God. So we can easily see how confusion or misunderstanding develop around our words and our understanding of persons. Arius had a problem and the rest of the church needed to say, Arius, you're wrong. There's a very popular worship song that is rooted in today's reading. Rooted in Revelation 4 and 5. As a matter of fact, the song is called the Revelation Song. But the lyrics of that song move back and forth between the father of Revelation 4 and the son of Revelation 5 in a way that can lead us to wrong conclusions. Because chapter 4 verse 2 clearly describes there is one who is seated on the throne. And 5.6 clearly says that there is a lamb who is standing. And 5.7 describes the standing lamb as taking the scroll from the seated one. So I believe Revelation 4 and 5 is talking about two of the three persons of the Godhead. Last month, we appropriately honored our mothers. Last week, we appropriately honored our fathers. But fathers are not mothers, and mothers are not fathers in the economy of God. And father is not son, and son is not spirit, and spirit is not father. But they are all one God. Why does this matter? Because at no time was God ever dead. Let us take a few moments now to reflect upon this universal seat of authority and power in Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation 4, we see the throne of God. And moving rather quickly, we begin by noting some math facts. There are three holies. Holy, holy, holy. It's a completion of holiness in 4.8. We read that there are four creatures. But if you notice, these four creatures are mentioned seven times. And seven is the number of complete perfection. Speaking of sevens, we read of seven sevens. The torches, the spirit, the seals, the horns, the eyes... There are seven times that we read that there are seven somethings around the throne. Because it is perfect. 
And then there are four 24s. There are 24 thrones and there are 24 elders. The number 24 has been related to the 24 books that the Jewish writers assigned to their canon. See, we break down 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Samuel. In the Hebrew scripture, they're one book. Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. So there were 24 books that made up the Old Testament canon. And some believe that's the reference here to 24. Others believe that it relates to the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles that we will see in Revelation 21. Or did you know that 1 Chronicles 24 describes that there were 24 orders of priests? One man had 18 descend, or 16 descendants, and another man had 8 descendants, making up 24 different orders of priests. And so each priest would take a week, and then the next order. And so that's why we read about Zechariah in John chapter 1. It was his turn to go to temple because there were 24 orders of priests. Now, even though I made a big deal about the father and the lamb in these two chapters, notice that the four creatures and the elders bow down before both. The four creatures and the elders bow down before the throne and they bow down before the lamb because they are distinct persons, but they do receive the same worship. We look at the thrones that surround the one throne. One of my Bible background commentaries states that elders, those seated upon the th- elders were those with authority in the Old Testament cities and later in the Jewish communities who would function as representatives for their community. Just as we have senators or representatives, the elders were those who represented their community. But notice the location of these thrones. See, today, if a politician speaks, he often speaks from the stage, and all of the people are out there, and very rarely is anyone behind the speaker. But here we have 24 thrones totally surrounding the throne of God. Have you ever thought why politicians appear on a stage with no one behind them? But athletes are normally given their trophies in the middle of an arena. The only people who are allowed behind a politician are those who have been thoroughly vetted and they prove that they are no threat to the speaker. I heard once that the most terrifying moment to be a Secret Service agent is when the person being protected gets out of the limousine. Because when he gets out of he or she gets out of the limousine, he creates a 360 degree exposure to attack. But when God is seated upon his throne, he is surrounded by thrones because there is no one or nothing that is capable of attacking the almighty God who sits on the throne of heaven. There's no one who can jeopardize the one who is seated there, the Almighty God. 
Verse 5 tells us that from this one central throne, thunder and lightning, which is reminiscent to us of Mount Sinai in Exodus, or the wanderings in Leviticus and Numbers. In front of the throne is a sea of glass. Have you ever thought about all of the places where reflecting pools are placed? These are places where the pool does little to add to the grandeur of the person or the events being honored. But the pool, the reflecting pool, is a call for the spectators to reflect on how important that place is. Whether it's the Taj Mahal, the Washington Monument in D.C., the Two Towers in New York City, the uh, Memorial to Women in Arlington, Virginia, or the Oklahoma City Memorial, all of these have reflecting pools so that spectators will pause and think about the significance of this place. And in front of the throne of God is a reflecting pool, a sea that is like glass, so that all the residents of heaven will stop, will pause, and will think, how important is this place? How significant is the one who is up on the throne? It's a time for us to hit the pause button and to soak in the grandeur of our God. From this reflection, the scripture goes on to talk about crowns. Now, there are two different types of crowns in the scripture. One is like a royal crown, a diadem, and the other is a laurel wreath, like you'll see in the old Olympics. See, the crowns in heaven are not symbols of pride. Some of us have lived our Christian life thinking, you know, I'm going to get a crown and I'm going to get all the jewels as possible on my crown. So when I'm walking down the streets of heaven, everyone will say, wow, look at that crown. Look at all those jewels. You were really something. Crowns in heaven are not symbols of pride. But at the same time, they're not simply disposable leaves that have been woven together. Because chapter 4, verse 4 tells us that the crown is made of gold. But it's not a matter of pride because verse 10 tells us, what did the elders do with these crowns? They cast them at the foot of the one who was seated upon the throne. They're not symbols of personal pride. They're symbols of adoration that we give to the one seated upon the throne. Not only do we, ref- do we reflect on the sea, not only do we cast down our crowns, but we also read that we offer praise and thanksgiving. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, they praise God for who He is. And in verse 11, they praise God for what He does. And these are two elements that are a good structure for our prayer. If you want to praise God, think for a moment about who He is. 
the eternal God, the creator God, the sustaining God, the loving God, the merciful God, the gracious God. When we think about God for who he is, and then we give thanks for all that he has done for us. But without missing a beat at all, John simply moves from the one who is seated upon the throne, and he doesn't even seem to pause to take a breath. He moves immediately from the praise of the one seated upon the throne to focus upon the scroll that is held in his hand that is sealed with perfect seals. Have you ever... been frustrated by packaging that was so tight you couldn't get it open? Here is a scroll that is sealed so tightly they can't get it open. I have never understand why the five and dime puts 95 cent batteries inside of a blister pack that is impossible to open. Our Sundays begin with a stop by Casey's to get iced coffee for Ann. And since I am too cheap to pay for the name brand, I usually get the store brand. But there's a problem with the store brand. Because the pull tabs they put on the top are so weak, you can't even open. They bend and they break, and you can't get the coffee that's inside. And so we gave up on the cans and we went to the bottles. But what do they do with the bottles? They put a shrink wrap over the top that is so tight you can't get into it. Now leave it to Casey's to ruin my sermon illustration. Because I went this morning and I bought Ann some coffee and you know what? They've added perforations in the shrink wrap. So now you can get into their coffee. Now... Why does this make a difference? I want you to think for a moment about the frustration of not being able to open a package. And we have all the residents of heaven that know that the one almighty God is holding a scroll. It's got something good inside of it. But they're actually weeping because they can't find anybody who is qualified to open the package. The majestic one in heaven has a scroll that contains his plan for humanity. And an angel begins to ask if anyone is able to open the scroll and nobody in heaven or on earth is qualified to open the scroll. When one of the elders says, oh, by the way, there is a conquering lion who is worthy to open the scroll." So in Revelation chapter 5, we begin to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God. One elder says there's a lion that's available. And so while John is looking for a lion, he notices a lamb between the throne and the four creatures that surround the throne. And this lamb is a slaughtered lamb, a lamb that bears the marks of death who takes the scroll and immediately worship breaks out. The four creatures fall down before the Lamb in worship. The 24 elders fall down in worship, holding harps, which are symbols of worship, and bowls, which contain the prayers of God's people. 
Have you ever paused to think that the music of worship, as well as our prayers of supplication and dedication this morning, are being poured out in heaven before the Lamb who was slain? See, worship is not about musicianship. It's not about stirring our emotions or making us feel warm and fuzzy. Worship is about adoring our Savior because our worship is represented in the hearts in front of our God. But notice three things about the Lamb. In verse 6, this Lamb was slain. In order for a lamb to be an acceptable sacrifice, it had to be without spot or wrinkle. After Jesus was resurrected, he used the wounds to convince the disciples that he was who he claimed to be. And I don't know how a lamb can both be slaughtered or bear the marks of death without marks. But this slayed, literally the word is slaughtered, this slain animal is deemed by all who are present in heaven to be able to open the scroll. The lamb was slain and the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. Because in the 72 hours that we know as Good Friday to Easter morning, four things happened. We see these four things in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 5. He shed his blood, which appeased the wrath of a just God. He ransomed lost humanity from every race. He gave God's family a purpose. He made us priests to worship God. And he's given us a future to rule with God. Four things that Christ did in those 72 hours, which makes him worthy to open the scroll in the hand of the one who is seated upon the throne. He was slain. He's worthy to open. And then in verses 11 through 14, we see that he is worshipped as God. In verse 8, the elders and the creatures worship him. In verse 11, thousands and myriads of angels join the elders and the creatures in worshiping. In verse 13, every creature in heaven, on earth, and in the realm of the dead is worshiping him. And we get to verse 14, the creatures and the elders say, this is good. It is good for all of creation to worship the lamb who was slain. In chapter 4, verse 11, God is worshipped in heaven as the creator and the sustainer of all. In 5.13, both Father and Son are worshipped by every living being. But from the glory of this heavenly vision, let me land this plane and put us back on the flinty soil of Chase County. It is good for us to understand that one day all life will acknowledge Jesus as worthy of all worship. But today, is he worthy of your worship? Is he worthy of your obedience? Is he deserving of you saying no to my selfish desires 
and yes to his lordship. I trust that today, if you have never done so, you will repent, turn from your sin, and celebrate forgiveness by turning to Christ. For all who have done this, this is what we celebrate when we share the bread and the wine. We celebrate our forgiveness by consuming bread and wine to reflect on the body and the blood of Jesus, the lamb that was slain to make us priests and to offer us a future. If you did not receive the elements as you came in, you can simply raise your hand. Our elders will serve you as we reflect upon the question, is he worthy of?